This morning, I have the pleasure of speaking with Rich Ting, who's starring as Bolo in the Bruce Lee Cinemax series Warrior, and is in this season on Amazon's Emmy-nominated The Man in the High Castle, playing Sergeant Ijima, who's the who is Inspector uh, Takeshi Kido's right-hand man. Rich, how are you today? Great. How are you doing? I'm fantastic, man. You got two series, you know, both uh, one cable, one streaming. You know, you're you're working it. A lot of people can't even get one gig. You got two going on at the same time. Congratulations. Oh man, I appreciate it. Yeah, um, you know, last year was uh, was a pinnacle year for for myself and my team, and you know, it's what I always say. You got to keep the momentum going. You know, you work so hard to get these kind of opportunities, and once you get them, you got to turn them into something else, you know what I mean? Uh, What's the saying? Opportunity plus preparedness uh, equals success? Exactly. I'm trying to live by that. (laughs) Yeah. That's awesome, man. You know, you got a martial arts background. You're a first-degree black belt in Taekwondo. You earned your first black belt at the age of 13. You're acting. You're doing all sorts of stuff going on right now. Um, You know, uh, according to your profile, you're fourth generation Chinese, Japanese, American born in L.A. That's got that's an interesting combination on top of everything else with speaking five languages. (laughs) Yeah, you know, and I've I've slowly discovered all these things as as I continue to get older and mature, because obviously, you know, as a kid and growing up, especially in California, you know, with the diversity we got going on over here on the West Coast, it's uh, you take a lot of things for granted, you know, and so. Growing up, I continue to realize, you know, um, what an excellent job my parents did in raising me in the sense that they just, you know, they put me in different demographic environments, whether it was for academics or athletics. And, and, you know, to the current day, you know, all those little experiences as a kid, you know, being fourth generation biracial Asian American and interacting with people of all different ethnicities and colors, it's, it's really, um, it's it's really giving me a really fresh perspective, you know, something that I, I totally took for granted uh, when I was a kid. But um, but yeah, you know, it's funny you, you say all those things, and and it's times like this that I that I reminisce and I go, oh yeah, I am, I am that, I am that, because to be honest, to me, I'm 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 just an actor trying to make a living, and uh, you know, I have a schedule. So that's all. I just keep it real simple. But uh, I appreciate I appreciate all those words. Well, all that all that extra stuff is bonus. You know, I mean, you're primarily an actor making it as an actor. You know, you happen to be Chinese and Japanese, which Chinese and Japanese people haven't always gotten along with each other. And I like that you referred to it as biracial instead of just assuming that it's this wide brush stroke of continental Asia because the continent goes all the way from Turkey to Indonesia. So they forget about the rest of us on the western side of the continent. Oh, totally. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I, I think I think you can't forget about it one, when you are, like you said, Chinese and Japanese, just because yeah, they're, you know, historically, and I'm a history buff too, so just historically, you know, there's been so much conflict and 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 wars, you know, between all the different countries in Asia that you know all that gets lost, I think, um, once you come across the Pacific. You know what I mean? And so um, I'm very proud to be both, you know, not only Chinese, and, but Japanese, but also to be a fourth-generation uh, American. You know, um, it's ironic that, that my Japanese grandparents were actually born in California, and uh, a lot of, quote-unquote, you know, blonde hair, blue-eyed, um, or even African or, you know, Latin Americans that I meet, you know, I'm, I'm two or three generations more American than they are. <laughs> yeah. 
that doesn't get that doesn't get conveyed when when I meet them face to face just because you know you see you see the physicality first you know what right. I mean and so it's uh it's been it's been it's been fun it's been interesting just because I have such a different perspective even from amongst a lot of my Asian friends uh, in California you know there's there's a lot more I think third fourth and fifth generation Asian Americans in Hawaii just based on the geographics and the history of Hawaii but you know especially in California where you think it's such a melting pot. Um, I think I still am a minority in the sense that I am a fourth-generation Asian-American. Right. Yeah, I'm a first-generation American, period. So, you know, you're ahead of me on the game. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's got to be interesting because, you know, you can go back to your grandparents and having been born in California and raised in California and people are constantly migrating to L.A. and becoming a part of the society – that you have a tighter grasp or a tighter knit community to the land than more than a lot of other people would. Yeah, totally. You know, and I think too, that, like I said, things happen for a reason, you know, the God works in mysterious ways, I always say. Right. So I, I think just the fact that I'm not only American, but that I'm fourth generation LA, you know what I mean? Um, that, yeah. And nobody's born in LA. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, especially in this industry we're in, you know, and and I think ironically, it, it's ingrained in my blood to the sense that you know, LA to me for for a lot of people is very intimidating. It's very chaotic. It's very fast. Um, there's a lot of different adjectives people use and associate with LA, you know, and what Los Angeles means to them, especially in the entertainment world. And to me, ironically, LA is calm. You know, I mean, it's home. You know, I always joke that. I could be somewhere in a remote place filming and, and I get a little, uh, I get homesick due to the, uh, due to the lack of speed of that, of that particular location or, or the hustle and bustle, so to speak. And, you know, once I get back to LAX, I mean, as, as congested and, and, and horrible as that airport is, um, to travel in and out of it, there, there's a sense of calmness that comes over me once I'm back in, you know, in LA and Southern California. So, I think that's where it really shows that, yes, I am born and bred and, and, you know, in Los Angeles. You need the anxiety and the traffic to make you comfortable. No, I, you know what, it's not <laughs> so bad, but it's so true. Because if it's an open highway, I get nervous that, you know, that where, where is everyone? You know, I always joke, like, you know, I've, I've had to work in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and Santa Fe, New Mexico, and, and other remote locations where, you know, there's only a few cars on, on the freeway, you know, at 3 p.m. in the afternoon, and, and I get real nervous, you know, as if I didn't get, you know, a, a public statement announcing that something bad's about to happen. You know what I mean? so, <laughs> right. You're used to the uh, sign posted 65, but going 35 is your norm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. All right, man. You got to tell me about uh, Captain Imija. Or, I'm sorry, uh, I- Imijima. Yeah, Ijima, yeah. Um, so I played Captain Ijima on the on the fourth season of The Man in the High Castle. And um, you know, for fans and viewers out there of the series, uh people people know that, you know, every every season typically uh Chief Inspector Keto's uh right hand man or his general or his sergeant that's usually working with him, uh happens to always get killed. <laughs> so the new season always seems to bring on a new person to to assist and to aid uh, Chief Inspector Kido as well as the Japanese Kentai. Um The cool thing about Captain Ijima is that he comes from he comes directly over from Japan to, like I said earlier, assist 
and provide aid to uh, to Chief Inspector Keto. But with Captain Ichima, there seems to be a different vibe and air with him. Um, I think the viewers are going to pick up immediately in Episode 1 of Season 4 that he's not just there to help, quote-unquote. And I think there's going to be a lot of question marks as to what Captain Ichima's motive is and kind of what his overall objective is and who he's really working for, you know. And, and the answer to that, without giving away spoilers, is that he's working for Imperial Japan. He's working for the Emperor of Japan. Um, he's getting his orders directly from Japan and carrying them out in the Pacific states of the U.S. alongside uh, Chief Inspector Kido. So, um, again, without giving any spoilers away, you're going to find out that he is different. Um, there is something else kind of kind of starting there in, in episode one that the viewers will eventually discover later in the season what what that what that weirdness is what that oddness is um it's not that he's rebellious it's not that he's um not doing his job it's just that he's just loyal to the cause and um yeah it, it will become exposed slowly as we get deeper into season four that's awesome, man. Especially you know because this is an alternative history that that you know Philip uh, D. K. Uh, Philip K. Dix wrote, and you know was a Hugo Award winner. So the transition from you know the novelization itself into a four season series, and four is your lucky number, man. Fourth generation American, fourth season. You know you got fours all over the place. You got to go play roulette in Vegas, man. Just put it all on four. No, I, you know what's funny. <laughs> I, I actually haven't thought of that like that. For this particular show, but you're absolutely right. You know, I always uh, that, that's a side note. I always talk about you know because it's always like high school was four years, college was four years. You know, there's always these these groups of four. So that, that is true, and that is pretty cool. I haven't thought of that one yet. Yeah, yeah. What you know, obviously, yeah, or well, not obviously, but hopefully, they had you read the novel before you go into the series. But there has to be expanding you know they have to expand on the novel because it's only so many pages and now you're in four seasons it's not like you know season four is the start of chapter four you know and they're going chapter by chapter exactly yeah you know that's one thing that's really cool once you know you kind of get over the first season of any show is you know first you have to appeal to the viewers and build that fan base and that foundation but I think, you know, once shows just universally get into, like, even their second or third season, that's really when the fans have a lot of input, I think, with the producers and the showrunner and the writers, just because, you know, they, they, they look at social media, they see the comments, they see the reviews, and, and a lot of it's very cool because there's a lot of things that get inputted from the public that maybe the public isn't aware of that helps shape that next upcoming season. So. You know, one thing about the fourth and, and unfortunately the final season of High Castle is the fact that, you know, we knew it was the fourth and final season going into it. So the writers knew that we were going to have to bring closure to everyone left, you know, and I think that's always, a, you know, it sucks to know this is your last season, but it's also cool to know that ahead of time in the sense that the writers can write and, and prepare a, a an appropriate ending, I would say. You know, of course, there's always going to be questions and, and what ifs and what, you know, and all those things. But I think with our season four, it, it you know, they, they did an excellent job in kind of not ending everyone's story, but just ending the stories that the viewers have been following thus far and, you know, leave it up to the imagination on what happens in everyone's future. You know, and, and I think that's, that's the one thing that's very special about our season four of this show. 
And what's it like coming in? Because, you know, you have an established cast. People have worked together for the last almost half decade. Well, let's say, no, let's be honest, half decade, you know, on the series, put, putting everything together. You know, what's it like now to be the new kid in school, essentially? Yeah, you know, um, I was speaking about this earlier to someone, and, and, and fortunately, you know, due to, the, due to the unfortunate situation, I always parallel, parallel it to uh, to Antonio Brown and, and the New York Patriots, New England Patriots, right? It's like, you're already a New England Patriots. Now you're coming on as a new player for another season. Like, you're already going to win. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So until, until A.B. kind of, you know, did his thing and had to leave that organization, I was like, oh, that's cool. Like, A.B.'s joining the Patriots, you know. Like, they're definitely going to win now. So with me, I'm not by any means saying I'm A.B., but what I'm saying is that, uh, you know, it was very cool to come on to a team, to a winning team you know, to an Emmy Award winning team, to to a cast that's so decorated and so talented that, you know, it was actually the opposite of having a lot of pressure because I knew as long as I just basically stayed in my lane and did what I had to do and listened to the people I needed to listen to, I was in a safe and and winning environment. You know, uh, contrast that to another show that, you know, it's the first season, for example, like my other show, Warrior, you know, we don't know how that's going to be received. It's the first season. There's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of question marks. There's a lot of anxiety. Um, you know, but like you said, with High Castle having three successful seasons before, um, basically I just came with the attitude like, you know, I, I'm here. You know, uh, the, the worst thing I can do is, is screw screw this up myself, you know, and so otherwise just enjoy it. Um, it was very cool for me just on a personal note because I had been a fan of the show since season one. So, Literally, it felt like I, I, I literally was like, you know, beamed from my sofa at home watching seasons one, two, and three. And the next thing I know, I'm on that set with these real characters in wardrobe in that time alternate world, you know. So for me, uh, it, it was such a cool experience. And also, um, ironically, a, a little bit more of a stress-free environment, you know, just based on the people that were around me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because usually people would seem more stressed out coming in on such a successful show and riding the wave that's exactly. like, oh, we built this, and who's the new guy coming in? And you're like, cool, put me in, yeah. coach. I'm ready to play. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, this is what's cool about, you know, how life works, right? You know, when I was in high school, I actually transferred to another high school my senior year to play football, and it was an athletic uh, career choice I made at the time. And, you know, that I kind of I kind of paralleled to that experience in the sense that, you know, here's a group of guys that were together before I arrived for three years. Ironically, you know, High Castle, they had three seasons before me. And and, and I'm the new kid, like you said, on, on, on the team. Um, I, I just think, you know, as long, you know, as I show my willingness to work, the integrity of my work, and like the seriousness of my craft, that, um, you know, I just wanted to come in easy and just add what I could add and contribute what I could contribute and, and just um, have a really good attitude with the whole thing because, I mean, I was on a high the minute I got cast for High Castle just because, like I said, it was the first show in my career, you know, thus far that I've I've been a fan of first before joining um, that show. And so for me, I was ready to go, you know, since season one, literally. So to come in with that, I think, um, you know, and I think, too, that's also the objective, you know, of, of a show if, if they decide to bring in a new character, um you know, to bring in that enthusiasm, to bring in that new energy, to bring in that freshness, so to speak, you know? Because um, I basically, yeah, I'm coming off the bench, basically, you know what I mean? 
and, and you know, if someone gets hurt or someone gets killed off, and I got to replace them. So, you know, that's kind of the attitude I took with it. That's awesome, man. I'm, I'm glad that you have such a positive attitude because so many people would be nervous with that. Uh, switching to Warrior real quick, you know, that's cable versus streaming. And people will say acting's acting in production's production, but there has to be a slight difference because not just contracts of once considered new media, one's already under the old contracts with the residuals versus uh, rebroadcasts and whatnot. But what's it like going from alternative timeline to, a, well, kind of alternative timeline because it's another Bruce Lee you know, uh, type production. Yeah, you know, that was, it was cool. And, and, and it's just, like I said, it's just so weird. And I don't think about this at the time or before. I always, you know, it happens after I finish doing something. And, and what I'm referring to is just the fact that I've been a history buff my whole life, you know. So, so to be, let's say, transported in High Castle to an alternate universe, you know, you know, a what if universe, a what if the U.S. lost World War II and, Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan took over the world, you know, going from that to, you know, what if, you know, back in the 1800s, you know, in the wild, wild west, what if, you know, the Chinese Americans and the Chinese immigrants uh, were able to, to be highlighted in a different light than what history has shown in the past? You know what I mean? Because, you know, the one thing that's different about both these shows is, one, High Castle is a hypothetical situation. In Warrior, you know, what we what we portrayed was history, was American history. It was just a part of American history and a part of San Francisco, California history that just hasn't been highlighted um, before in Hollywood or, or even, I think, in, in, in academics, you know. We, 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 I think we all get a, get a little sense, a little sprinkle of, the Chinese immigrants back in the day and the coolies and the fact they worked on the railroads and were, you know, made major contributions to that. And at the same time, you know, started to develop these Chinatowns, you know, whether it was New York or San Francisco or LA um, or anywhere else back in the day, you know, that kind of was a safe haven for all these Chinese immigrants, you know? So for warrior, it was really cool. And it was such an honor because like you said, it is, a Bruce Lee inspired show, you know, the man, the legend wrote this, he created this back in the sixties. Um, you know, and 50 years later, we're not only allowed to, and have the opportunity to bring forth, you know, this, you know, the greatest martial arts vision of all time, but also to expose a part of history to America and to the world that I think has really not been in the limelight. And it's, and it, I'm not saying it should be the complete, complete story or the, or the only story but it's definitely one of these other stories that needs to be told you know and it was it was just such an honor to not only um you know attribute and and, and prolong the legacy of bruce lee but to also give back to, you know my chinese american heritage as well right. and what's it like you know this story was written 50 plus years ago didn't see the light of day it took shannon lee to to open it up and produce it and finally get it made you know, what's it like to honor that? Okay, so this has been on the shelf for half a century, and now we can bring it to light. Yeah. Like that history aspect of it. Like, what what's it like bringing it to life for you? I mean, it's so it's so original, man. It's so refreshing. Um, not to be negative at all, but you know, there's so many reboots and remakes of these other shows that were popular. You know, in the '80s and '90s and you know, it just goes to show you that there's new material out there, you know, and I just think the industry as a whole sometimes is a little apprehensive to take uh, to take a chance on something, you know, that they always want to stay, quote-unquote, safe. 
So anytime, you know, I'm able to be a part of a project that kind of pushes that envelope, you know, kind of, you know, pushes those borders and whatnot and, and tests the limits of not only the industry, but obviously the viewership, uh, I'm all about it, you know. And, and Warrior, I think, is a prime example of, you know, a script, a treatment that was created decades ago, you know, by by a legend himself and, and, and wasn't given the light of day due to, Bruce Lee's Chinese ethnicity and the fact that when he did pitch it back in the late 60s, uh, you know, studio heads back then, they weren't ready for this script, you know, and, 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 I, and I don't hate on that. I, I actually completely understand it. And the more and more I learn about Bruce as a person, Bruce as a, a producer, a, you know, a show creator, you know, and, and what he was about and the time period he was alive in, I completely understand why why the industry was quote unquote maybe intimidated by this Chinese man who was such a legend even when he was living to bring forth such a radical script that ironically was true. You know, it's based on truth. Um so to to see this thing come full circle, you know, fifty years later in two thousand nineteen in which it was premiered you know, I, I think I think it's awesome, man. I think there needs to be more of this. I think there should be more emphasis on discovery and, and new material. Um, you know, because, you know, it's like anything else. You know, it's like an investment, you know. It's, it's a stupid investment until until you see it just blow up and then you're then you're a genius for investing in it, right? Right. So I, I think just, you know, as when people take chances and, you know, to be honest, this wasn't even like a chance to, you know, when I think about it, you know, the, the treatment, the, 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 the script, the people involved, who wrote it, the genre. I mean, to me, this was a win from the beginning, you know, so I can't even really, I hear myself talking about this as if, you know, we, you know, the industry took a chance on warrior. I, I don't think it was a chance, you know, to me, it was, a, it was, it was gold from the beginning, you know what I mean? But I just, I just love it because it was, you know, you know, there were so many things associated with the term first, Mm-hmm. It was the first Western with an Asian American presence. You know, it was the first Asian American drama action thriller that in which Asian Americans weren't accented. You know, we weren't all portrayed. You know, as quote unquote typical Chinese coolies or immigrants, as what the the mass media has always put out there for us. You know, it was the first Bruce Lee uh, treatment that that came full circle. You know, um, there was so many just first with this thing that it was it was just awesome. Well, the funny thing to me was like they, uh, you know, cinema always, or Western cinema at least always tries to portray Chinese men as emasculated. I'm like, there's 1.4 billion people in China. Something's doing some somebody's doing something over there that there's no emasculation yeah. whatsoever. <laughs> yep, exactly. And that that that's what was the ultimate satisfying part of this whole project was just. You know, not only bringing to something a life that, you know, my personal childhood idol and life idol created, but the fact that I was able to play the character of Bolo, you know, and the fact that they kept his real name and it's based on the real character and the real uh, individual by Bolo Young. You know, we know him from Enter the Dragon. We know him from Bloodsport as Chung Lee, you know. Um, to me, growing up, watching Bruce, watching Bolo, you know, you had two different styles, two different physicalities. Um, and two different two different images, you know. But at the end of the day, you're right. Out of a billion something people, you had at least, thank God, we had at least two, you know, Chinese Asian icons that were physical, intimidating, strong, powerful, leading men 
you know, and then to bring Bolo to the camera, you know, in 2019, the way I did, I just really wanted to attribute the man and give him a full life, you know, because, again, not only was Bolo and Bruce, you know, portrayed and, and kind of typecast in one, in one genre, but, you know, to me, it was important to give Bolo, for example, a, 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 a true character in the sense that, you know, he wasn't just this intimidating beast that just stood there and, and intimidated people. You know, he was a real person with a real backstory, with a real, um, you know, with, with a sense of humor, with a sense of compassion. He was vulnerable. You know, he was, he was human, you know, and, and that's one of the things I really wanted to, you know, to convey, you know, through my portrayal of him is that, yeah, you know, we're, 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 we've been historically shown as, you know, demasculated, emasculated, you know, males, and and that's not always the case, you know, and, and so with a character like Bolo, just to to show his strength and power, and just to show you know that he's that, you know the leading man in Bolo, and just all that good stuff that I think needs to be that needs to be out there more, especially with with the Asian American community. You know, it was just really cool to bring that to life. That's awesome, man. Listen, I'm thrilled for everything that you're doing. Uh, you know, I wish you all the continued success that you're having. It's exciting to see somebody that is an L.A. native doing something in L.A. And, you know, it's just blowing up for you. So it's exciting all the way around. And, you know, Rich Thing, before I let you go, I need to ask you two questions. Um, when it's all said and done, it's time to retire what does Rich Thing want to be known for? And then following that, please let us know where we can find you on social media. Yeah, well, first, thank you for having me, man. These great questions and really enjoyed speaking with you. Um, yeah, when it's all said and done, you know, it, 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 it sucks because, you know, what I would like to be known for, I don't think the general public or the majority will ever get to know just because, you know, I, I'm not able to work with everyone in the world, so to speak, you know, but one thing I would say, I would love, you know, my, you know, fellow casting crews of all the shows I, I, I've done and hopefully will do is, you know, that, that I was just, uh, I, you know, I was a person of integrity. I, you know, I worked hard. Um, I took my craft seriously and, and, you know, and I'm grateful to do what I do, you know, just having, having the background that I've had and coming from where I've come from, you know, I, I, I kind of, I kind of had opportunity and resources to pursue, you know, medicine, law, business, um, finance, whatever, you know, and, and I chose, I chose this career for a reason. It's because one, ironically, I will never retire just because this is one of those jobs where, you know, if they, even they need a, you know, a dying old 90 year old Asian American dude to play a part, like hopefully that'll be me at 90, you know? So, right. I, I hope I never have to retire. I hope people that I've worked with, um, you know, say that I came to work with a great attitude and, and was a hard worker. And hopefully, you know, a bonus would be if the fans and the viewers enjoyed what I did, you know. And, and, and I just, I think, I think I just want to show that, you know, I am an actor. I am an artist. And I have a range that continues to grow. And I continue to train on it, and hopefully by the end of my career, whenever that will be, I would have shown I will have shown all my colors. You know that that's the goal. So, and uh, regarding social media, yes, I am on all social media platforms at Rich Ting World. 
Awesome. Rich, thank you so much. The pleasure was all mine. I'm, I'm glad we got to talk to, to you today. Uh, hopefully we'll get to meet up at some point and, uh, you know, we'll get some of your, uh, some of your reels showing us what you can do on the mat in Taekwondo. Awesome, man. I appreciate the time. Thank you so much. <laughs> all right, man. Take care of yourself.